0: This podcast is sponsored by the Copywriter Underground.
1: It's our new membership designed for you to help you attract more clients and hit 10K a month consistently.
0: For more information or to sign up, go to the thecopywriterunderground.com. What if you could hang out with seriously talented copywriters and other experts, ask them about their successes and failures, their work processes, and their habits, then steal an idea or two to inspire your own work? That's what Kira and I do every week at the Copywriter Club podcast.
1: You're invited to join the club for episode 133 as we chat with composer and copywriter Doug Pugh about symphonic copywriting, the maestro formula and how he puts it to work in his copy the book writing process, and what he's done to complete his book, and why copywriters should be involved in the arts. Welcome, Doug.
2: Hey, Doug. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here.
1: Yeah, Doug, great to have you here. So why don't we kick this off with your story, how did you end up as a copywriter?
2: <laughs> okay, right into the weeds. Here we go. So I was a university professor of music in Cincinnati. I have a doctorate in music composition. I was really doing well. My my composition career, because most, most university professors who are composers, they kind of run, kind of like copywriters, they have a little freelance business on the side getting commissions to write music. So I was doing really well with that. I had a couple really big projects, two of them that included operas at the John F. Kennedy Center in Washington, D.C., and things were going great. Well, I got home from one of those big opera projects and I got fired. And it was like, what? I just brought a bunch of accolades to our school and you're letting me go? And it was a big kind of a mess. There was some jealousy going on. There was all sorts of drama and turned out I had to still finish the semester as a blacklisted, <laughs> fired professor for six weeks, which really sucks. But in the meantime, I was pretty messed up. Like my whole identity was being shaken. Like, man, I'm not going to be a professor anymore. What What should I do? I was kind of looking for a way out of academia. I, I didn't really realize it. Now looking back, it was really a blessing in disguise. But boy, at the time, whew, it was painful. So my brother-in-law, who runs a big dropship Amazon selling company, gave me a call that same day, but I'd lost my job, and said, hey, if you want, we have been looking to hire somebody to do some online marketing for us. Would you want to do that? And I thought to myself, what the heck do I know about online marketing? My whole life, I've been a music nerd. I can do all sorts of cool stuff, but what is online marketing? But not knowing what else to do and kind of freaked out about supporting my wife and our three kids at the time. Now we have five. I said, okay. And he said, well, we'll buy you some books and we'll buy you some courses and we'll, you know, we'll help you learn. And so, you know, as a longtime student and professor, I I like to learn. So I, I sort of started digging in and reading all sorts of stuff. And I learned about some famous copywriters like Ray Edwards and Ben Settle and I heard about some of the old timers like Claude Hopkins and Gary Halbert and you know some of these names that we all know and love so I started geeking out with that started figuring out the online marketing thing for my my brother-in-law's company in the meantime we moved to Utah now I'm neighbors with Rob we live about half an hour from each other but we moved to Utah my wife started a network marketing business as a consultant and she was having trouble getting her sales up. So I thought, hey, I've been learning all this cool copywriting stuff. And I was really into Ben Settle at the time, still am, hooked on all his email stuff. And so I thought, hey, why don't I try to help you write some some emails like this? And within a month, we quadrupled her income. And within another six months, we 12X or 13X her income just with Email. It's like, whoa, this stuff really works. And earlier this past year, she won a trip to Maui and it was all from a big email launch that we did, like a 19 day big soap opera sequence that I crafted really carefully and looped all of our dramatic stories together towards a big sale. And we won this trip and we're going to be in Maui in two weeks. So. I guess that brings us to today pretty much, but that, that's that been sort of a three-year, I guess it's 2019 now, so almost four-year journey from when I was fired in March of oh, wow. 2015 and dabbled and dabbled a long time with my brother-in-law's company and then sort of started the copywriting stuff with my wife about a year
0: ago, maybe, maybe a little more than a year ago. Yeah. Good stuff. I want to ask about, you know, what you were doing in the emails. But before we get to even any of this copywriting stuff, I want to know, what does it take to become a music professor in addition to maybe a modicum of musical talent? Like, if one of us wanted to be oh, that, Kira, Kira plays the violin, or starting to.
1: I'm, I'm preparing to be a composer and conductor. Exactly. So what
0: day. is she going to have to do to get there?
1: <laughs> What's ahead of me? Give it to me straight.
2: You guys are singing my tune now. This is fun. Okay, well, it's pretty uphill. (laughs) Don't tell me that. that. (laughs) To begin with. Dream shattered. (laughs) I'm so glad you're playing the violin. That's wonderful. My wife's a violinist and all my kids are too. But boy, to be a music professor, well, first of all, you need a doctorate in a musical field. Mm, So in my case, it's in composition. But to get a doctorate, you had to have a master's and an undergrad. And I had to win a bunch of competitions to get those degrees, and I had to learn to play several instruments pretty proficiently, some more proficiently than others. But basically, I've been on this track since I was five years old. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Isn't
1: there like an online course I can take overnight uh,
2: just to do this? <laughs> no, I'm really sorry. There's lots of people who will tell you that maybe you could do that if, if you pay them, you know, whatever. But now to be, it I mean... It is very uphill. It's a real labor of love. I used to have this come-to-Jesus talk with my students (laughs) at the university. Like, okay, what's going on? You guys are slacking off. You're not doing your work. Let me explain to you what it takes to be a successful professional classical musician in the 21st century. First of all, I have a doctorate. I have many awards. I won the number one student composer award in the country, like, this was a huge award. I had a Fulbright scholarship to Poland where I got a postdoctorate at the Juilliard of Poland, the Chopin University of Music. I have had big operas at the Kennedy Center. I have had big commissions. And my I'm on food stamps. And my students were like, what? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, this is not for the faint of heart. Like, You have to not be able to breathe without music in your life if you really want to make it. On mm-hmm. this path, like it's actually, I was talking to David Garfinkel yesterday about this very subject. He and I have become Facebook pen pals oh, <laughs> recently. He's so great. He's quite the songwriter. I don't know if you knew this. I didn't know
1: that. Yeah,
2: I, yeah, I knew he was into music. Uh, plays Plays guitar. I think he has fifteen guitars. But he he grew. He wrote a little jingle when he was seven years old, and he's had this bug ever since, and wanting to be a, a musician. Of course, he's this amazing copywriter and the best coach in the world. But on the side, he's taking lessons, and he's doing all this stuff. So we've struck up this friendship, and it's sort of like you know I'm coming to him crawling on my knees as a wannabe copywriter, and here's the the (laughs) granddaddy master. And then the tables turn, and he's coming to me with these questions about music and harmony and composition. It's kind of this fun, this relationship we've been building up. But he said to me yesterday, he's like, the mafia seems more reasonable than a music career to me. And (laughs) (laughs) that's a very true statement. I mean, literally, I had to do music. It was like my calling. Like, I cannot survive my life. I cannot get through the day without music. It's just, it oozes from me. So if you don't have that kind of, like laser crazed focused desire that you'd be willing to give up your firstborn child almost it's not for you so <laughs> there you go
1: <laughs> okay so what happened i mean we're i'm feeling your passion for music through the <laughs> microphone and i've hung out with you so i i felt it in person too so what happens when you do get fired? You're on this track that you started when you're five years old and you get fired and it sounds like your, you know, dreams are crushed overnight unexpectedly. How do you deal with something like that mentally and recover from something like that over time? I imagine it d- didn't happen overnight, but what did you have to do to take care of yourself, to pick yourself up and, and step into a different space?
2: I thought I understood what challenges were in life before that. We've had a lot of rough stuff go on in our family. My wife nearly died in childbirth and the whole living apart while I was in Poland for nine months. We've had a lot of hard stuff. But for some reason, this just really knocked me on my rear end because it was a real identity crisis right? Like I had like bled and sweat and cried and given so many years and, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt and just crazy stuff to being a professional musician, right? And and suddenly it's like, it's gone. And it was just, it was a huge identity crisis. I'm not sure I'm over it a hundred percent to be honest. And I did not handle it very well for quite a long time. And I, I Gained a hundred pounds afterwards, and I, I just I lost it. This was a major, major crater in my brain and in my soul. So now looking back, I mean, so Kira, you and I are in Ray Edwards' mastermind, the Empire Builders' mastermind, and we've just come a few weeks ago off of this this mastermind retreat we had together, and the stuff we were talking about, I mean, it's like all mindset, like the whole time, right? It was so good that stuff has helped me a ton. I've been doing some of that mindset stuff before now, but just the last month or so since we've been at that mastermind retreat, I have made leaps and bounds because I've really been applying. Like every hour, I have a mindset check. I have my phone on this hourly alarm and I have like my four compass points that I write out every morning in my Michael Hyatt free focus planner. And every hour my alarm goes off I stand up, I do an Amy Cuddy, you read that book by Amy Cuddy, Presence, where, mm-hmm. you know, physiology over, over psychology. I stand up, I do a victory pose, and I chant my word of the year, my, my one word and my four compass points. And it's like it hijacks my negative self talk and it hijacks my sort of self hypnosis. And then I can come right back down and get back to work and be in a great frame of mind. So, man, I wish I had, would have had that four years ago (laughs) but live and
0: learn
1: can you share some of those lessons i mean because it was a really good retreat and i took a lot away from it as well but like what were some of those valuable lessons that you took away from the time with ray
2: one of the really big ones was this whole idea of of self-hypnosis we were talking about how people typically don't realize that they're just kind of robots and we just kind of go through our regular routine every day not thinking and we have sort of this negative self talk soundtrack running in our mind 24/7 and it's like we're hypnotized and so just the the idea that that first that that was happening to me and as he was you know telling us about this and how he had experienced it i was re- i was seeing all the markers in my own psychology like that is exactly what's happening to me and so i was you know primed and ready to see some of his tips about how to get out of that, and just to, to be able to, like I was saying with the timer, sort of hijack and re-hypnotize myself into a positive soundtrack. It's almost, you know, everybody, everybody has a movie theater in their mind, right? We're, we're all the lead character in the film of our life. But what's the soundtrack to that film? And I think the soundtrack is very often negative self-talk, and it may come from our early years as kids like maybe our parents were mean to us or maybe we there was a bully or maybe as we grew up you know many different things can happen but it's like it programs this negative self-talk into our deep subconscious and so just the pointers he was giving us about four compass points and the door frame i love this door frame thing so he has this thing where he puts these post-it notes on the door frames in his house and in his office so that every time you walk through the door, you say the words on the post-it notes. And they're like, I'm going to enter a room with this kind of mentality. So for him, it was like upright posture, positivity, something like that. My, I have four door frame points. Mine, mine are grateful, cheerful, giving light, And play the infinite game. So every time I walk through a doorframe, I stop, I tap the doorframe, and I kind of like do this little humdrum repetition in my mind. Grateful, cheerful, giving light, infinite game. Like these are the things I'm going to do as I enter this room. And sometimes I go through like four doorframes in a row just to get to the bathroom. So I stop and I (laughs) I do it a lot. You're dedicated. Man, just... Yeah, the repetition, I mean, I'm not 100%, but I've been doing pretty good, like 60, 70%. And man, it's a big <laughs> help. It's huge. I just love that.
0: So, Doug, you know, so many people come to copywriting because they're coming from another career. Oftentimes they've lost a job or they're desperate and they need to make something work. And it sounds like. You know, you were in that kind of a situation, you know, where where you sort of lost your identity and you had to move into something else. Looking back, you know, in addition to the mindset stuff that you were just talking about, are there is there any advice that you would give somebody who would find themselves in that position today? I just lost my job, maybe copywriting's the thing for me. What would you say to that person? I would say
2: first, I feel your pain. I'd put my arm around you <laughs> and I'd cry with you a little bit mm. and I'd say it's gonna be okay you're going to be able to get through this. It's going to suck. It's going to hurt, but it's going to be okay. That'd be number one. (laughs) Number two would be, you need a mentor. I wish I would have done something like that much sooner. I Now that I'm in Ray's mastermind, and I've been going through his copywriting certification program, he's really become a very special mentor to me, both in copywriting and just in life that has been huge. In my music journey too, is the same thing. I mean, the reason I wanted to get a Fulbright scholarship was, well, twofold. One, I wanted to go abroad and have a different experience and, you know, get out of where I was just to expand my horizons. But two, I wanted to have that sort of master-apprentice relationship with a great world-famous composer that I wanted to be like. And the man I chose as a Polish composer who's just a really special person and became a very great mentor to me. We spent a ton of time together, both writing music, conducting music. I was the assistant conductor of his choir at the cathedral in downtown Warsaw. But then we, we traveled together. We went to festivals together and we just got to hang out. And Having a mentor like that, during, and it was a challenging time then too, because I didn't have my family with me. There was not enough money from the Fulbright Commission to take my my wife and three kids, so they moved in with my in laws for nine months, while I went gallivanting off to Europe. And I had major dad guilt, and it was that was tough. That was like it was like the tale of two cities. It was the best of times, and it was the worst of times. <laughs> But that mentorship did a ton for me. So I would say if you can get a mentor, somebody who you resonate with, somebody who has reached the mountaintop that you're trying to get to and is willing to come back down and walk with you and show you the way is huge. I mean, in addition to all the be a dedicated student, read all the books many times, do all the hand copying of the important stuff. But that's like the 10%, I think. That's like the mechanics Anybody can do all that. But finding a mentor and working on your mindset and working on your vision with a mentor who you know and trust and come to really kind of love almost, not in a weird way, but there's just a special relationship that has been huge for me.
1: I wonder what lessons you've taken away from your experience as a composer and a conductor that are showing up in your copywriting business, either in the business building side of it or even in the actual craft of writing.
2: Well, let's see. Gosh, first of all, the composer life and conductor life, while they have many similarities, they're pretty different. So, the lessons I've learned from composition are very similar to like the nuts and bolts of copywriting. And so, as I've been learning copywriting, coming from a composer background, of course, I'm latching on to these ideas of persuasion and writing from a composer perspective, and I start understanding it through my composer learning and my my musical terminology and those sort of things. So that has really helped me wrap my mind around some of the really complicated copywriting principles because I can relate them to really complicated musical principles that I really know really well. I could go deeper, but let me switch to the conductor side for a minute. So being a conductor of an orchestra is a really interesting experience. First of all, it's kind of, I, I I liken Brian Kurtz to a conductor, right? Brian, <laughs> I've told Brian this too, he's so flattered. He's like, oh my gosh, you can't, you can't say that stuff, but I'm saying it, Brian, you are. Mm-hmm. I call him the great direct response impresario <laughs> in an email, but he is like a conductor because though he was never like a Big time copywriter himself. He knew how to work with the copywriters and he knew how to Mm -hmm. organize these huge campaigns. All the moving pieces. He had a, still does, has this wonderful vision of how these enormous things work and can pinpoint the problems. That is very like a conductor. I mean, imagine standing in front of a hundred very fine musicians, each one of whom has had a journey like me, where they've been since little kids and they're masters at their instrument. They've spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on their instrument and their education, and they've been to huge festivals. They've won huge awards. Each one of the hundred musicians in the orchestra could be the soloist, could be the headliner. Right. They know how to play that music. Yet here we are all as a group playing together. And then the conductor has to come in and guide them and convince them to follow him. And right. That's really hard sometimes. It's like herding cats at times because everybody has their own ideas. And that's like, imagine Brian doing a promo with, you know, all the name copywriters at once. It's kind of like that. Like where you have to, first of all, know all the music. You have to know everybody's part and then be able to bring them together and guide them. So I think I learned more marketing lessons from being a conductor, and I learned more nuts and bolts of copywriting lessons from being a composer. And I can go deeper with each, but I think that's sort of my mentality of what I've learned from those.
0: Yeah, let's go deeper with the copywriting lessons in particular. In fact, I think you've taken some of those and turned them into your own copywriting formula, but yeah, will you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so
2: I have this little... Formula called the Maestro Copywriting Framework, where you spell out the word Maestro, M-A-E-S-T-R-O, and it's a little formula. It's an acronym and a formula of sort of how to. Well, there, there are several levels of it, and I, I kind of stole this from Ray Edwards. He has a framework like this too, which he calls the Pastor Method, P-A-S-T-O-R. Where first you, the P, you identify the person, the problem, and the pain. Then A, you amplify pain. And then S, you tell the story that kind of soothes them and solves their problem. The T, you offer the transformation. The O, the offer and the R, the response. And so I sort of modeled that and turned it into my formula, the maestro formula. And I took it another notch up because in classical music, there's a, there's this whole thing about Certain old school maestros who were major tyrants, and I sort of compare them to the hypey scam artists, slick marketers, versus the good maestros who are now very empowering and helpful and like a good marketer. So I, I've got a blog all about this. If people are interested, they can check it out on my website, symphoniccopywriting.com. But so my maestro formula, it's both. An ideology and in practice, like how I write my copy. Starting with M. Like, there are, people have misery. There's, there's like hidden misery in life. They're mortals. You know, they have problems. What is that? Lean into it. And so on through the formula. But that's one thing, my maestro copywriting framework. Another thing, which I'm writing about in this book that I'm writing, which is so far called Symphonic Copywriting, but David Garfinkel's been convincing me to call it something else. So to be determined, (laughs) when the greatest copywriting coach in the world gives you suggestions, it's wise to follow them. So I'm working on that. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So one of the things is story. Like music, like most art forms, it's all about story, right? Why do people go to a ballet? Why would you go to the symphony? Why would you go to a rock concert? Or why do you take your family to see the Nutcracker at Christmas time, right? Or even a film on the weekend. Why do you go see Bohemian Rhapsody on the weekend? It's a story, right? People want stories. They want to get out of themselves for a little while and see themselves on stage in the life of whoever they're watching, right? In that film, that movie theater in their head, they get to be Harry Potter for two and a half hours or they get to be, you know, whoever. And That is something I've learned a ton about as a composer, especially a composer of operas, is just really good storytelling. So far in my copywriter journey, I think that's where one of my big strengths is, both on the small scale, like in emails, and in email sequences that I string together, and in in sales letters and product launches and things. But to be able to use story in such a way that's authentic and that finds the juiciest emotional parts of the story and like squeezes on the juice of the, you know, those juicy emotional parts that really drive home sort of the hero's internal journey of the emotion, right? There's the sort of the hero's two journeys thing, the, the outer journey where Harry actually goes to Hogwarts and eventually, you know, takes over and kills Voldemort. That's the external journey. But the hero's journey internally is like, well, how does Harry change as a person as he goes through that? And that's what story is really great with, is it's helping change that internal definition of the prospect or the audience member or the film goer or, or whatever. And I think that's where I've really enjoyed myself the most so far in copywriting. Can
1: you break that down even more for us, you know, for a copywriter listening who's like, cool, I get the story's important. I know I'm not doing it as well as I could be yeah. in my copywriting. Can you just give some, like just some advice or some actionable nuggets they can use next time they sit down to write their story for a client?
2: Yeah, for sure. I think first of all, the, the success or the failure happens in the research on many levels, but especially with the story. So let me give a case in point. So a little while ago in December, Ray, my mentor, he hired me to write a 52-piece email sequence. It was a long <laughs> email sequence, right? And it was it was actually a subcontracting gig. He had been paid to write and didn't have time, and so he subcontracted with, with me to do it. And it was for a network marketing company. So I spent a week or so on the phone with five or six of the people in this company and just listening. Like I just would ask some questions that would get them to tell me their story and gosh, for like an hour and a half, these ladies, there's all ladies, they would tell me their story. So as I'm listening to their story and kind of guiding the conversation, I'm really listening for the aha moments, the drama moments, the like the turning point moments. And they happen quickly because I think sometimes in our psychology, it's like it doesn't seem like that big of a deal to us. And so I'll have to stop them. Like, oh, there's a funny example of John Carlton when he was writing that letter, the, the one legged golfer. He's interviewing the golf guru and he mentioned something. Oh, yeah, I learned this from this guy who's only got one leg, but he could drive the ball. He's like, whoa, 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 whoa. one leg? Tell me more about that, right? Like, he, he was kind of skimming over it. And so looking for those little diamonds in the rough that typically people who are telling the story will go over too quickly i like to stop pinpoint those and ask more questions about that specific thing so in these calls i was doing one of the one of the ladies used to be a cheerleader for the ravens the, the nfl football team and the the business it's a health supplement kind of network marketing company and she's now transitioned into being this really successful sales consultant for them and being a cheerleader, she's got some experience with health and stuff. And so she was kind of glossing over these really key transition points that I noticed as she was telling the story. And that's where I would kind of hop on them, really listen, really ask deeper questions. And those created kind of the basic foundation blocks of this super long email sequence. Because when you have those specific turning points and those specific little gems in the story, they can First of all, create powerful open loops if you're doing a big, long sequence or even in a long sales letter. And if you don't want to tell the whole story at once because you were trying to get some proof elements in there, you kind of set a little hook. You open a loop. You go into some testimonials or some proof or whatever, and you come back to the story and you keep the reader engaged because they're like, whoa, what was that thing that changed her? I got I to gotta hear what that is. And so the, the loop that you open you know, brings them back so that's a big part, looking for those real gold nuggets. And then the other part I think is the planning of how much time to spend on each of those important points. And that that for me it's a little bit more intuitive. I wish I had a better kind of mechanism. Maybe I need to work on coming up with one, but I sort of just feel it. It's very much like writing a piece of music, like okay, I'm in one key for a while and I'm using these different chords, but At a certain point, I need to move on and increase the tension somewhere musically. And I do that with harmony, usually with the chords underneath. And it's sort of innate. It's sort of like I have a gut feeling that it needs to change here. So that's kind of so far how I've done it with the pacing of the story. But I'm looking for flow. We talk about the greased shoot a lot in copywriting, and that's definitely hugely important but there's more to it than that it's not just the greased shoot in the moment of one piece of the copy there's also the long line of a multi-pieced campaign whether it's a product launch or even a really long sales letter that's really one big long arc so to speak one long dramatic shape you have to kind of zoom out and check the flow like are they still engaged? What can I do to keep them engaged here? Oh, I'm dropping the ball a little bit in this section. It's very sort of intuitive. I'm not sure if
0: I'm being helpful or not, but that's sort of how I think about it. And I think it's really helpful. So when we were talking about you know, Ray's formula, you mentioned you know each step of his formula, but I don't think you mentioned what the Maestro formula is. Do you mind sharing what those steps are and, and how you
2: apply them? Yes, let me do it in two ways. So I'll explain the the bad maestro and the good maestro. (laughs) And the little story with this is you probably have all heard, if not his name, I'm sure you've heard his music. Arturo Toscanini, this famous old kind of dictator conductor. He was the conductor of the NBC Orchestra for ages and ages and ages. And anybody who ever saw any classical music on TV between 1955 and 1985 has heard Toscanini, because he conducted the music. But he was a terrible tyrant. I mean, just like kicking people out, like the best players of the orchestra, in the middle of rehearsal because they played a wrong note, which happens. I mean, we're humans, right? He was a major tyrant. But musicians don't deal with that anymore. They've, they've unionized, and they can fire the conductor. So now there's this sort of this new age of conductors, these good maestros. And the example I use in my blog post is this guy, another Italian, Claudio Abato, who's like the opposite. So, okay, here's the two sides of the maestro. First of all, the bad maestro, an M. A bad maestro is a me-mouth and a manipulator. He only talks about himself and does anything to manipulate the situation in his favor. The A, he's austere, he's aloof, he's autocratic. That means like he's a dictator, right? The E, he's an egomaniac. S, always sour and sullen. T, he's territorial, he throws tantrums when things don't go his way. A real piece of work. The R, he's relentless, he's badgering, he's remorseless. He just kind of bulldozes over people. And the O, oh, he's obnoxious. Everything about him is overstated and ostentatious. Kind of like those marketers we see who, you know, go in front of mansions that aren't theirs and rent Ferraris that aren't theirs and take take videos. Love those, those guys. guys. Yeah, it's like yeah. earn five billion dollars <laughs> right. in two point six seconds. <laughs> yeah, right. Then on the other side, there's the good maestro. A good maestro. The M. Good maestro cares about her market, and I use her on purpose. There are actually many fine female conductors nowadays, they recognize their shared mortality. Like, we're all just people. We all have common miseries in life that we don't typically like to talk about, but they're there. We've all got them. That's the M. The good maestro with the A, she aims at the heart of her audience and works to arouse them to have this desire to solve their misery. The E, she's empathetic, right? She puts their arm around them and, you know, cries at them a little bit and Helps them feel that she really does want the best for them, authentically. None of this false empathy stuff. The S, she wants to learn about and understand the saga of their life, their problems, and then offer solutions that can really soothe that misery in her saga. The T, the good maestro works to guide her audience through a process of what I call transmigration, which is kind of a highfalutin word. An easier word is transformation. I like the word transmigration. It's kind of a religious word, but it means a new body, a new life, a new state, right? Like as copywriters, we're trying to really help people, right? That's really what we're doing, unless we're the the bad maestro or the bad copywriter, right? If we have a good product that can really help somebody, like maybe it's weight loss, maybe it's financial issues, like this product is meant to help them and people aren't going to buy it unless they really truly believe that it will help them and sort of give them this new life. That's that's why I use the word transmigration, even though it's kind of a big You know, $10 word. The R of the Good Maestro formula, the Good Maestro is results oriented and she reveals the solutions just at the right time. And then the final one, the O, she's driven to bring positive outcomes with her offerings. So that's just sort of my guideline for myself of stepping through the process, the persuasion process, the sales process. And I sort of keep this up in front of me a lot. I have it printed on my wall just to check myself. Like, am I being a good maestro, a good copywriting maestro here? Am I being a bad copywriting maestro here?
1: (laughs) Doug, it's hard to imagine you as the bad, evil maestro. I think you're safe. (laughs) I'm pretty (laughs) sure you're safe here. Can you talk about, I mean, you are a new new business owner and a new copywriter. Can you just talk about like what it's actually taking to get some business and to, and to make some money and what this looks like for you. I mean, you mentioned mentorship and how important that is. So I know you're, you're working with Ray, but like what's working, what's not working as far as just getting this business going in the early stage.
2: The big challenge I'm having with that, other than just figuring that system out is the juggling act. Cause I've still got my full-time job working for my brother-in-law and my wife's running her business and we have five kids and we both work from home. Thank goodness we don't homeschool. I'd die. No offense to homeschoolers. You guys are great. I, I really I really admire you, but I couldn't do it. It's so helpful. The kids, you know, they go to school. They love school too, so that they're they're super happy. But even when the kids are at school, we have two little ones at home still, and I'm sort of the chauffeur in the family, and I I'm doing all the today. I spent an hour and fifteen minutes at gymnastics this morning with my five year old and I was walking around the track and doing client emails and stuff while (laughs) I'm walking around. So the juggling act is my big problem right now. But so as far as like, what am I doing to get clients? I'm attending a lot of events. That's one of Ray's favorite ways to get clients to go and make friends. He's like, don't be the pushy pain in the butt, like have a goal to make three really good friends wherever you go. And even if you they don't exchange business cards or if you don't exchange, you know, or if you don't have a talk about working for each other or you know sharing services, just make some friends and, and, and then you know keep in touch and follow up with them. They'll they'll figure out that you're a copywriter, and they'll they'll ask the questions. And so that's been big. I'm doing a ton of events right now, hopefully including your event, which is coming up, which I'm super excited about as a geeky copywriter. So that's big. And then really following up afterwards. So, like, for example, I went to LaunchCon, Jeff Walker's, he has two big events. He has PLF Live, which is coming up in April. But I went to LaunchCon, which was back in November. And I I did. I had the goal of making three really good friends. And I ended up with, like, five really good friends, which was awesome. And about That's a
1: lot of friends.
2: Yeah. Well done. we, We all kind of sat together and hung out and... You know, I was purposefully staying away from people that I already knew, not to be a jerk, but like to just get out of my comfort zone. Cause you know, we all, that all, that happens to everybody, right? We all have varying degrees of introversion. <laughs> and I think as copywriters, we are usually more introverted than others. And because I'm a composer too, I'm like doubly introverted. I have my little composer copywriter cave and every once in a while I come out and, oh, there's grass and sunshine and people like, oh, yeah, I forgot about that. So that's, that's hard sometimes to, but I sort of forced myself, and I had a great time. Actually, that's where I met Brian Kurtz. I saw him across the room, made a beeline <laughs> for Brian Kurtz, and had my picture taken with him, and anyway, so that's, that's big for me. Other than that, I'm sort of in the middle of reading a bunch of books, like there's this great book by Michael Port, Book Yourself Solid, He's got a great system I'm working on. There's this guy, Jason Resnick, who's got a cool system that I'm working on implementing. And I need to sign up for your guys' membership because I hear you've got all sorts of cool tips and tricks that I'm curious about. So
1: Wow, you're just plugging all of our stuff, man. Thanks. Yeah, well, I might as well. Yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, let's do it all. Yeah. <laughs> So, Doug, I want to shift the discussion just a little bit because I know that you've been working on your book. In fact, I think you might be done or almost done with your book about symphonic copywriting. Tell us about that process and you know just the process of putting together a book. Why did you do it? Back in August,
2: I was at one of it was my first event that I went to of Ray's Ray Edwards. It was the, the million copywriting as a million dollar business event, and it was like a big. Price tag. I was really going out on a limb. I had to borrow the money from my boss, who's my brother-in-law, which is always a little weird. But man, it paid off. And while I was out there, that's when I had this aha moment about combining my music with copywriting. I had this idea that I had to shut off my musical self that I just had to suck it up and move on in life and accept that I wasn't going to be a full-time professional musician anymore. I got five kids to feed. They're going to need braces. They're going to want to go to college. Like, I got to figure something out, right? So I'm sitting there the very first day, and Ray says something. He's like, if I was a composer, and of course I peeked up like, oh, I wouldn't hide that. When I meet people, I'd be telling them, I can write melodic copy that sings your customer's tune, and I was like, "Whoa, hold the phone! That's a that's allowed. I can do that." <laughs> so I started geeking out. Like, he's like, "Yeah, don't don't hide yourself. Like, that's so unique. Nobody can duplicate you. You've got this unique background. Everybody does. We've all got unique backgrounds. Why hide it? It it makes you a category of one, right? Like your are famous." podcast guest Seth Godin said a while back on your podcast, being a category of one is awesome. So through the three-day thing, I just kept having these like aha moments about combining music with copywriting. And that's when I came up with this idea of symphonic copywriting. And I thought, well, okay, maybe I should write my method. So it was it started with this idea of this is how I understand copywriting. I understand the challenges of the sales process and writing a big, long sales letter, the way a composer understands how they write their symphony. But not just classical music, because I think some people get a little like, well, I don't understand classical music. What are you talking about? But I think of a musical, right? Like one of my brothers is in the the Broadway musical Frozen. Kira, you're in town. You got to go see it. Check out my brother. He's awesome. It's on the list. It's happening. He's super talented. But like, you know, a musical like Frozen or Little Mermaid or Wicked or whatever – These are pieces of music that were crafted over a long period of time very carefully. And, you know, we we understand all the ins and outs of a sales letter, the headline, the lead, the the body copy, and the overcoming objections, and getting to sort of a climax, and the offer, and the risk reversal, and the offer stack, and all this kind of stuff. That is so analogous to how you write a big piece of music. I mean, and then take things like the product launch. Like, think of, like, the Jeff Walker product launch formula. Like, when I learned about that, I was like, that's nothing but an opera. That's a musical. I can, I can like, pinpoint to you the points in his process that are like, oh, that's the first song when the character sings. Oh, that's the dialogue. Oh, that's the big ensemble number, right? So I started understanding all this stuff through the lens of a composer. So I thought, all right, I'm going to sort of codify my method as maybe a way of helping others to figure out copywriting more quickly with the analogy of music. So that's where the book has kind of come from. I'm not done with the book yet, and I've suddenly really slowed down because David Garfinkel and I have done a really cool trade together. He's looking for a lot of critiques of his music and his songs. And I was like, hey, I'd love to do that. I mean, just... I just love an excuse to hang out with the guy. He's so brilliant, and so in turn, he's like, "Well, hey, maybe I could look at your book for you." I'm like, "Oh, sure," I'm like, "Yeah." So over the last few weeks, he's started giving me some critiques on the on the book, and oh my gosh, this is taking on a whole new life. So I've kind of slowed down. I'm almost finished with what I've been done. What, what I've been doing with the book, but I'm going back now, and I'm. I'm changing some things and I'm sort of recalibrating. So it'll take a little bit longer to get out than I thought it would, but it's gonna be all for the better. It's gonna be pretty cool. Can't wait to read it. Thank you. Actually if you can check out a draft copy. There's mistakes. I'm a copywriter, not a copy speller. But there's a draft copy available for free if anybody wants to get the first two chapters. You're welcome to go to Symphonic Copywriting. There's two C's in the middle, symphonic copywriting dot com slash book you can see an outline, some chapter titles, and I'll, you know, I'll send you the, the intro and the first couple of chapters.
1: So, Doug, before we start to wrap, you know, I know when you and I had met in person and hung out, you were talking about some podcast ideas and these classical musicians who are famous names and how their lives are really like soap operas oh, yeah. and very dramatic. Lots of crazy stories. So I know you can't share all of them, but can you just share one of your favorite stories that maybe is kind of a sexy story and also has a lesson, some lesson that would be valuable to us too?
2: Definitely. Man, there's about 500 million of them, but I'll pick one that is familiar to everybody. I'm sure everybody knows or at least heard the name Beethoven, right? Ludwig von Beethoven, probably the most famous composer ever. Wait, you're not talking about the dog? No, not that Beethoven.
1: I though. was waiting for you to say <laughs> yeah. something, Rob. I was just waiting. I was like, Rob's going Rob's gonna to say some <laughs> smart comment.
0: It was either that or a, reference, a reference to Bill <laughs> and Ted. You know, oh, something, yeah. Something there.
1: It took, you, it took you a second.
0: Yeah. If I had done Mozart,
2: well, I had a teacher who had a dog named Mutzart, <laughs> which was pretty sad. But anyway, Beethoven, born 1770, died 1827. In 1802... 25 years before he died. He'd only written his second symphony at the time. He went on to write nine symphonies and his ninth, everybody knows the fifth. It's that. Everybody's heard it. No, keep going. I have not heard it. Keep going. Big dramatic music. It's a very kind of fate melody they call it. Anyway, there's a huge triumph at the end. It's wonderful. But the Ninth Symphony is, I mean, widely agreed upon by music people everywhere, the greatest piece of classical music ever written. And in fact, when the Berlin Wall came down, Leonard Bernstein, the most famous classical musician of the entire 20th century, put together an orchestra of people who lived some of them from eastern Germany and some from western Germany, which is, you know, the Berlin Wall went right down the middle of Germany, and it was the communist bloc on the east side and the western world on the west side, and they were enemies. He put this orchestra together of members from both sides of the wall, and they performed Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, the Ode to Joy, which is a huge sort of manifesto of brotherhood of coming together from different parts of life and coming together on a baseline, on a foundation of our common humanity and brotherhood. That piece is that kind of piece that can bring people together like that. Well, Beethoven was stone-cold deaf by the time he was 32 years old, after the Second Symphony. and like, How can a composer be deaf and continue to write music? So there's this famous document that he wrote. It was basically his last will and testament. He was going to kill himself. Hmm. Knowing that he was going completely deaf, he like ostracized himself. He took himself out of society. He couldn't stand the social embarrassment of being a famous composer and being deaf. People had to shout at him to get his attention. He talked loud because he was trying to hear himself. He was so incredibly embarrassed. Yet he was this great, famous composer. He was like Mozart's prodigy student. He was going to be the next Mozart. So at the age of 32, after only 36 pieces of music written, and he wrote 139 pieces of music, published pieces, which are some of the world's greatest masterpieces, he was going to end his life he decided to keep going a few more days, and thank heavens because he kept going. And by the time you know he was in 1825, two years before his death, he was 55 years old. He wrote this ninth symphony, which has truly been like a healing balm on so many crazy situations throughout the world and politically and stuff, like the Berlin Wall coming down. Had he not kept going through that crazy challenge? He never would have changed all these lives that he's changed and been this huge example to so many people of overcoming challenge. Right. So like, you know, in our copywriting life and in life in general, stuff sucks sometimes. (laughs) Things go bad. Things go wrong. A client screws you or, you know, they, they cheat you or they don't pay you or your boss fires you from your music professorship or whatever it is. Like, Those moments are terrible. And everybody has them. Everybody goes through this kind of stuff. But the the lesson I learned from, from Beethoven is that it's okay to be upset at first, but then at a certain point, it's time to tuck that away and soldier on. And not just soldier on, but lean into that obstacle. There's a great book, The Obstacle is the Way, which I recommend everybody take a look at. That's what Beethoven did. He took this terrible challenge and made it the thing that turned, like alchemy, turned his lead to gold. Mm. You know, you don't know what 10 years from now you may write a piece that helps thousands of people get a cure for cancer or something. Or maybe it's, you know, I don't know, maybe a piece that you write does amazing things for people's. 401ks or if it's a financial, you know, package or whatever. You, you know, you don't know. You may have some great masterpiece coming later in your life that you just can't see. But if you give up now with all the potential you have, with all the time you have spent learning and trying and cultivating, there are people waiting for what you have to say. And they don't know it and you don't know it, but that moment's going to come when you're going to have something special that you do that's going to change somebody's life. And if you give up now, you're cheating yourself and them.
1: <laughs> you shouldn't be a copywriter. You should be a motivational speaker.
0: Yeah, exactly. Why aren't you on stage?
2: <laughs> oh, thank
0: you, <laughs> so Doug. You know, listening to all of this, maybe the answer to this last question that I want to ask is obvious because you have such a command for you know what music offers to culture and that sort of thing. But you know, why should copywriters? Being more interested or be more involved in the arts. What does that help, you know, the general group of us, if we could do more in the arts, how would that help us? Let me explain it this way. There's a famous conductor, Seiji Ozawa,
2: a Japanese conductor. He was the conductor of the Boston Symphony Orchestra for many years, like 25 plus years. Well, in Boston's a you know, famous academic town, a couple important schools there, Harvard, MIT, and some others. Well, the, the scientists, some of the, the neuroscientists, I think at Harvard, came and wanted to do a test on him. They wanted to see what the brain function of a highly trained artist, classical musician like Seiji Ozawa looked like when he was in action, right? So they, they hooked him up with all these sensors on his head, And they went to a rehearsal with the Boston Symphony Orchestra, one of the best orchestras in the world. And they had all these computers hooked up to the maestro's head. Now, this is the kind of conductor who can conduct an entire three-hour concert of very complicated classical music with no score, with no music, with no notes in front of him. He knows the thing cold, in and out, upside down, backwards and forwards. And so they, they were amazed. There was all this talk about, no, it's going to be his left brain, That's because it's all all analytical. No, it's going to be his right brain, because he's so creative. And they were all predicting what, what the brain scans were going to look like. But when they were there, they were amazed that his entire brain, every part of the measurable brain that they could see, was on fire. It was lighting up all over the place. And they had never seen brain function like that anywhere else. So I tell this story because it demonstrates why the arts wake us up, right? Like, even if you're barely playing Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star on the violin, Kira, right? Like it's not easy.
1: I play Mary Had a Little Lamb, not There little you little. go. Thank you.
2: <laughs> you sure it's not the ABC oh, song?
1: Right. I struggle, I'm, struggling, I'm struggling with Mary Had a Little Lamb. Well,
2: you'll get there. Don't just keep at it, right? It's one of those 10,000 hour things that you, it takes a long time. But it opens up our brains in a way that we can't open them up if we're just doing the analytical stuff all day, or if we're just at our desk all day, or if we're, or if if we're just, I don't know, you know, sort of stuck in our work rut. The arts, not just music either. It's like you know anything that you do creative, and you know copywriting is creative too. Of course, there's a huge creative element in copywriting. It's a really, it's a great marriage of of the craftsmanship and artistry, but. Just turning all that off and going for pleasure to a play or to a great film or to a, a concert, you, you know, whatever the music is, hip hop, rock and roll, classical, whatever your, your joy. It allows, first of all, your brain to do things that it never does otherwise and fire in a way that never fires otherwise. And it opens your spirit. There's this great, like, man, anybody who ever comes to me and say, my life is kind of tough right now. I wish I could get some relief and I could get some breathing room. You know what I tell them? I say, go join a choir. There is something so miraculous that happens when you sing. I can hardly explain it. It's like your whole insides just, they relax. It's, it's better than yoga. Truly, because you get the whole yoga experience, but on top of that, you're expressing something. And with your physical body as your instrument, expressing through sound, through your vocal cords, through the breathing apparatus of your diaphragm that comes from your toes, and you have to stand in a certain posture, and you have to breathe with your neighbor, and actually acquire their hearts start beating at the same rate and at the same time because they all start breathing together and it's this cool like jedi symbiotic force thing that happens and the whole choir's hearts actually literally start beating together it just opens things up so if you're feeling like you're down and you just need something get out and do something artistic and express yourself and sing and play and see a film and indulge you know with a Whatever your entertainment indulgement is, it's important to not shut that part of your brain off because you'll come back to your work refreshed with new eyes and with a new zest and zeal for life.
1: Yeah, that's very well said, Doug. And that's exactly why I wanted to pursue the violin, just to explode my brain and heart. (laughs) So if someone listening wants to reach out to you or find you or learn more about you, where can they go?
2: My website is symphoniccopywriting.com. I also have a music website, if you're interested. That's just my name, Douglas Pugh, D-O-U-G-L-A-S-P-E-W.com. You can hear some of my pieces and things there. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram. You're welcome to shoot me an email, send me a message. I'd love to connect.
1: Awesome. Thank you so much, Doug.
2: Yeah, thanks, Doug. It's been great. Thank you so much for having me.